Hey, this is Paul Gilmartin from the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and you are listening to The Soul of Life. And if you happen to turn it off, your life will cease to work. So uh, pay attention. He knows what the fuck he's doing. Your doctors don't even know what the true anatomy or nerve innervation is of female genitalia, which in 2022 is mind-boggling. Today, I speak with Dr. Rachel Rubin, a board-certified urologist and sexual medicine specialist. I'm a boner doctor. To talk with her about the most common and serious sexual health problems. Problems regarding libido, arousal, orgasm, and pain. I orgasm too quickly or it takes me forever. And just how many simple and life-changing tools are available for you to take advantage of? Well, a 50-year-old man has a 50% chance of having erectile dysfunction. We used to think it was all in people's heads. And the answer is actually it's not very often in people's heads. And it can be a very scary marker for future cardiovascular problems. Rachel is passionate about educating women especially about how to take joy and pleasure in their bodies. It's a very common thing in female patients. They're disgusted by the sight of their own genitals. Disgusted. How do we change that? We discuss how important it is to be comfortable with thinking in depth and talking in depth about our sexuality in order to untangle the painful knots that are bound to occur between couples, even in healthy relationships. If you're conditioned to only be able to orgasm and masturbate when you're in one position with your leg up, watching this very specific thing, using this exact hand movement, and there is no other way, and you've been doing that every day for 25 years, yeah, when you get a partner and the partner doesn't orgasm from penetration and you have problems, it can be a big mess. And I asked Dr. Rubin about the bias in the clinical counseling field to focus a lot on psychological and emotional issues when it comes to low desire and low libido. We hate the idea. We hate the idea that a pill can boost a woman's sexual function. We hate it because we want it all to be psychosocial. Rachel has made it her mission to address fears people have about addressing the biology that underpins apathy towards sex. There are medications that boost dopamine in your brain that can help with sexual function. Do they make your partner start taking the garbage out and treating you nicely? No, of course not. But do they help with your own thoughts and ideas? Do they help spark some like, oh, I'm thinking about sex again. My dreams are back. My partner initiates and now I'm interested. It's when you get that back for a person who has lost it, that responsiveness or even that innate interest, it's magical. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. And this is episode seven of season four, Better Biology, Better Sex. It's not all ambiance and conversation and uh, pornography. Like a lot of times it's plumbing and you got to think about that plumbing. There was no definition of the mind that anybody had. I'm Keith Miller. That's really weird. Can we swear on this? Something you hear at a swing party. <laughs> Something that sounds fun. We don't treat trauma. We treat the imprint of traumatic experience. I stood on top of the Olympic podium, very incomplete, not happy, and never ever thinking that I was good enough. Donald watched his older brother be destroyed that way, so he had to exile all the sensitive parts of him. Free soloing is climbing without ropes. Alex was born for climbing. Cannabis use disorder is real. There's no question about it. The, the broccoli growers of America are livid every time that they listen to this part of your podcast. What happens before sex? What happens during sex? What happens after sex? Compassion is contagious. We've got to have cake. Oh my God, I totally am bisexual and that's where I gotta be. He's incredibly successful by just talking shit about people's fried rice. This is the soul of life.
Hey, it's Keith Miller. I just want you to know that I've created a bunch of inexpensive and free courses on marriage improvement, mindfulness, and stress reduction. Just head on over to souloflifeshow.com forward slash courses and check out the cool resources there. Again, that's souloflifeshow.com forward slash courses. Dr. Rachel Rubin is a board certified urologist and sexual medicine specialist. She's a clinician, researcher, and she's passionate as an educator and someone I've referred patients to in my practice. In addition to being educational chair for the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, Rachel serves as an associate editor for the Journal of Sexual Medicine Reviews. Dr. Rubin completed her medical education at Tufts University, was just up at Tufts visiting uh, that campus with our son, looking at schools. She has done her urology training at Georgetown University and her sexual medicine fellowship in San Diego. San Diego. Dr. Rachel Rubin, welcome to the Soul of Life. How are you? Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. It's dangerous to go to Boston in this time of year because you fall in love with it and you realize that there are only about two months where it is like that yeah. and otherwise very freezing and in snow. Exactly. That's what we were going over with him. I've, I'm from New England, so like I was like, you know, think of it this way. You're going to be near Vermont. You're going to be near the slopes of all these great places. And, he, and he, you know, so he's like excited about that, but... You know, who knows where he's going to end up? He's only 16, just got his driver's license today. Wild. It is wild. So, and it's wild to speak with you. You, I know I've known of you for a while and have really come to really appreciate your, um, your practice and, and seen the results in my patients that talk to you. And I'm just excited to dive into this. It's, you know, sex and sexual health is, a important topic. It's something I've covered a lot on this podcast, and I know it's important to you. Um, let me start off, Rachel, by asking you about the term sexual health. Um, what What is so important about sexual health in medicine? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. So I am a sexual medicine doctor, uh, which means I take care of all genders for all kinds of sexual health problems, whether it's uh, and it really goes into four buckets, problems regarding libido, arousal, orgasm, and pain. And uh, it doesn't matter what gender you are, you couldn't have a problem in any of those buckets. And what I do is I look at the biological side of things. And so I treat every patient in what I call a biopsychosocial approach. So I really think of them holistically as whole people. Uh, and I try to understand what's going on with them from that biopsychosocial approach and come up with solutions. Now, I'm a urologist, so I look at hormones, I look at muscles and nerves, uh, I look at medical conditions that can affect sexual health. Um, and really, I work with amazing people like Keith Miller, right, who can really help me on the psycho social side of things. I cannot do my job without mental health professionals. Uh, and what you have realized and many of your colleagues have realized is you are much better at your jobs when the biological pieces are optimized for patients. And it's really a team approach. There's no one type of doctor that sort of does all of sexual medicine. And so I'm always working with different kinds of providers to help my patients maximize the quality of their lives. And what got you interested in this topic because in the subject, because, you know, you could have studied dermatology, you could have been a bone doctor, um, 
I'm a boner doctor. There's a difference there. So, so uh, I, I, I was walked right, for I walked right into that. that one. I did it. So, um, you know, it's a great, it's a great question. And I found when I was going through my medical training that I was interested in women's health and sexual health, probably because when I was growing up, my friends and I were comfortable talking about t- these types of topics. Uh, many of my friends had issues, whether it was problems having an orgasm, questions about painful tampon use or pain with sex. And so as you were going through puberty and, and having these questions, we were very open with each other. And so when I went into my medical training, I realized that that wasn't the case for many people. In fact, uh, I found my um, uh, people who were training me were very uncomfortable with these types of conversations. And it wasn't that I was good at it. It's that it didn't scare me and it interested me. And so I just found the right mentorship and found people who did this. And I found that if you care enough about something, you can become very good at it. Uh, and that was kind of, and, and the nice thing about urology is that I can take care of all genders in that all of our genitalia are pretty much the same. They're just kind of a little, some are bigger, smaller and, and work in a different way, but they're all essentially come from the same place. And so I can use my knowledge of a penis to understand more about the clitoris uh, and, and vice versa, which is actually very fun to do. Yeah, right. Maybe we um, don't think of ourselves as connected as we really are um, between sexes and genders and orientations, right? But there, you're from a biology view. Um, I did a great, I just have to give a shout out to this, not not to toot my own horn, but really to, to speak to this person, Dr. Neil Shubin, who's an evolutionary biologist, and people should listen to that podcast to talk about uh, he talked about his book, Your Inner Fish. So not only, you know, you're speaking about the genitalia, uh, cellular structures, but, you know, he would have a lot to say about where those uh, cell structures originated in, in other primates and then fish and all that cool stuff, you know, it's... That is so fabulous. And it's so important that we understand the history and the biology and the evolution, right, uh, of these things, because it matters to our day-to-day lives. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to listening to that yeah, one. It's a, it's a cool, I love making those connections across disciplines. Um, uh, it, but, you know, some of our listeners might be tuning in not to talk about fish and biology evolution, but to talk about like sex and like you said, getting it up or not getting it up. And I want to just ask you, what are some of the top concerns? Like if you could boil it down to like the top three concerns that people come, your patients come into with you every day. Absolutely. So on the male side, uh, we see a lot of erectile dysfunction. It's very common. Uh, to give you an example, a 50-year-old man has a 50-year-old, a 50% chance of having erectile dysfunction. A 70-year-old man has a 70% chance of erectile dysfunction, which means a 30-year-old man has a 30% chance of erectile dysfunction. It's very common and very not talked about because people are uncomfortable. And there are many biological causes. We used to think it was all in people's heads. And the answer is actually it's not very often in people's heads. And it can be a very scary marker for future cardiovascular problems. So if your penis is not working the way you want it to, please see a medical professional who will take you seriously because it can be a sign that you may have a heart attack in 10 years. And so we see a lot of erectile dysfunction. We see issues with hormone problems like low testosterone, which can cause low libido or fatigue uh, and, and, and issues surrounding, um, you know, erectile problems because of hormone issues. We see a lot of pelvic pain in my clinic. So I see a lot of people who have a uh, painful uh, orgasm or a uh, uh, pain in the genitals or pain with sitting and things like that. I get a lot of referrals for those sorts of things. That's on the male side. So I certainly see on the male side orgasm problems. I orgasm too quickly or it takes me forever. So it's 
little Goldilocks uh, trying to get it just right for the patient. Um, and on the female side, and of course, I see transgender patients as well and, and everything in between. Uh, on the female side, we see a lot of um, hormone issues. So menopause, I do a lot of menopause care. We see a lot of pelvic pain. I have pain with intercourse. I have pain with tampons. I have pain with anything penetrative. Uh, I see a lot of women with low libido. I, I actually um, used to get frustrated with low libido patients, but I have a lot more tools in my toolbox now the biological tools to help my patients that have been life altering for so many of my patients. And so uh, those are kind of the big things that I that I deal with on a day to day basis. And because there's so much variety, it is so much fun. That's really great. I want to I want to there's just so you said so much. I want to I want to circle back and zoom in on a couple things. Um, erectile dysfunction correlating with heart disease. And then I want to come back to low desire. Um, so I, if I caught what you're saying correctly, Rachel, you're a, a guy that's having a, a, a difficulty maintaining or getting an erection. It may not just be psychological. It might not have anything to do with desire. It could actually have something more to do with the cardiovascular system. Now tell me, tell me that you're not working for Viagra. I am not working for Viagra, although Viagra is a great tool and an inexpensive tool now that Mark Cuban's online pharmacy has made Viagra and Cialis pennies on the dollar. So it's very cheap. Just get a prescription from your doctor. Um, here's the thing here. If you understand how a penis works, then you understand what can go wrong. To have a healthy penis, you need healthy nerves, muscles, and arteries. Your penis is just a muscle, okay? It's not a muscle like your bicep that you can tell it to contract and relax. It works on uh, the fight or flight a little bit, right? Like, for example, Keith, if you're running from a tiger, do you want to have an erection? Can't. No, you're going to get eaten by the tiger, right? <laughs> not going to happen. So if you have adrenaline and stress in your body, that will contract the muscles of your penis to squeeze all the blood out of it. And so you need blood to get to those muscles to relax. So you need healthy muscles, healthy arteries, and healthy nerves. The arteries to the penis are tiny. They're one millimeter in size, okay? When you have a heart attack, those arteries are three millimeters in size. And so you are going to clog your penis arteries before you clog your cardiac arteries. And so if a guy has erectile dysfunction, I worry that he has an underlying issue that's going to clog his heart arteries in five or 10 years from there. And so what is good for your heart is actually good for your penis. So eating well, exercising, getting sleep. Oh my gosh, sleep is this thing nobody talks about. Uh, you have to sleep to have good sexual health. It restores your testosterone. It helps your erections. It's really important. So if you clog, think of it as a clogged pipes situation. If you have a narrow pipe, you will not get as much flow as if you have a nice wide open channel. And all Viagra and Cialis are, they're muscle relaxers. They relax the muscles in the penis to allow more blood uh, to flow through. It's not, it's not magic. It's not all, uh, it's not all ambiance and conversation and uh, pornography. Like a lot of times it's plumbing and you got to think about that plumbing. Yeah. 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 It, it's the canary in the gold mine, right? The gold mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a lot of things. We could go all sorts of places with metaphors. Um, that is fascinating. And, you know, I, I've, as a behavioral clinician, I've probably encountered maybe a, or accumulated bias in my own training and just bias myself that things are more behavioral and that, like you mentioned, that the causes we might look for causes. We, you know, there's this, I think, fairly, um, well rooted at this point, um, conceptualization about, um, 
uh, lack of arousal or arousal disorders, um, especially with men that, and and I want to ask you if there's some merit to it, that it's one of the first things on my list is I'll say, how much porn are you using? Right. Because of the desensitization to, you know, the natural stimuli that foreplay from a body, a partner, uh, partner arousal, they, they're not able to get aroused there except with their visual cortex. Um, Ted, Will, uh, who, who was it? Gary Wilson in a, in a well-known Ted talk kind of made this famous, like starting this movement to get guys who really actually like porn off of porn because they, they're 21 years old and they can't have an erection with their partner. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. Listen, I think, again, in that biopsychosocial uh, setting is really, it's in, when you go to the doctor, you get 10 minutes, right? And so it's very easy in 10 minutes for a, a doctor to say, oh, it's all in your head. You know, go go see Keith Miller. He'll figure this out. And your tools are uh, to, to work on the psychosocial thing. So absolutely, there are psychosocial interventions that we know work well. If you're conditioned to only be able to orgasm and masturbate when you're in one position with your leg up, watching this very specific thing, using this exact hand movement, and there is no other way, and you've been doing that every day for 25 years, yeah, when you get a partner and the partner doesn't orgasm from penetration and you have problems, it can be a big mess. And so, of course, there are the psychosocial things that we can do. And so I think the key is it is not one or the other. And we also develop, um, right? If you have erection problems with a partner, you're going to then, uh, it's going to worsen the adrenaline induced erectile dysfunction and the stress and the frustration, that tiger, right? You're going to always be running from the tiger. And so you cannot unleash people sort of from their, their, their psychosocial issues or their biological issues. So that's where it becomes important to build a team so that you understand what are your biological, what are the biological issues going on? Um, and then I can look at this and say, well, Here's what we can do. We can relax the muscle. We can add, you know, a, a psychosocial interventions. We can do all these other things. It's, it's called working together because ultimately the point of it all is a fun time, right? The point of it all is enjoyment and pleasure and quality of life. And so we have to have a toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I, just circling back to what you said, I always really like to focus on relaxation first being like you can't achieve, um, you know, Orgasm is a reflex, right? And and so you like you like you mentioned, if you're running from a tiger, your reflexes aren't going to be w- within the the bounds of your control, right? And so you have to be relaxed in order for those for the to, to have fun, to play, to have an orgasm. You ha- and if you're not relaxed, that's the people want to get to desire and pleasure, but forget that before that is relaxation and safety and interest, you know, <laughs> comfort, <laughs> things like this. I couldn't agree with you more. Listen, we deal with a lot on the on the female side. I just got done, you know, seeing a patient who is which is a very common thing in female patients. They're disgusted by the sight of their own genitals. Disgusted. It's a very universal, icky thing that that women are so, oh, it bleeds. Oh, it looks ugly. Oh, this, that, and the other. I said, wait a minute. Like, I feel very neutral looking at my hand, right? My hand does not invoke emotion from me. And yet the vulva is this thing that should bring pleasure to you. It should bring pleasure to your partner. Babies can like maybe made and come out of there. And yet it brings you disgust. It brings you fear. It brings you ickiness. Like, how do we change that? Like that part is just so frustrating. And so normal too. There's a term we use. I don't know if you've heard it called squick, squeamish and ick combined that everybody, you know, we try to teach on this idea that everybody has squick when it relates to sex. 
um, even just every, oh, I love everybody, that. you know, it's going to be squeamish or, or icky, something that's too wet. It's whatever it's, you know, certain words, you know, using the word wet might not make somebody feel comfortable. Right. So, you know, you find what's comfortable and you just get used to being your own, getting rid of the editor, the inner editor, and, and you be the, you're in charge. And I think it goes into where you start learning about sex, right? You get one middle school class and it never, you never get it again. So we are all eternally middle school awkward teens when we think and talk about sex. And so some people are better and more advanced middle schoolers. Some people are very far behind middle schoolers and you sort of just kind of stop. There's no continuing education in sexual ed- education. The doctors don't bring it up unless you seek it out and pay for, you know, a sex therapist and actually invest in yourself. It's really hard to learn how to use the words and say, hey, honey, that move you've been doing for 30 years is not working anymore. Or even just saying a little to the left is very challenging. Yeah, faster, slower. Um, yeah, it just brings up so much shame, right? We, we're constantly dealing with um, the, the shame in the culture, which is, you know, it wasn't something we could talk about openly, like you said, your hand, like have neut- at least neutral feelings, never mind positive feelings. We weren't, sure. you know, all sorts of, you know, I mean, we can't, if we just look at history, like, like, look, our country was founded by a Purit, Puritanist um, colony. And so uh, if anybody wants to read Handmaiden's Tale or, uh, you know, right, there's just so much to learn about where we all come from. But um I mean, even think about when we examine women in the gynecology office, right? We do it under a sheet. We don't want you to see your own genitals. We hide them from you to keep you comfortable, right? We don't talk about what we're seeing. You have no idea what you're looking at. Uh, it's like we're mechanics, right? Working under the hood. And it makes no sense, right? And and we don't teach. We don't use it as an opportunity. In my office, we do. Everyone gets a mirror and I give everyone a tour of their vulva and say, this is your labia majora. This is your labia minora. This is your clitoris. This is your vestibule. This is your vagina. You know, these are your pelvic floor muscles. So they have words, right? And then if they have pain or discomfort or lack of uh, uh, pleasure, they know where it's happening and they can use those words. I'm going to give a shout out to uh, a company that I, I have grown respect for as a, it's a tool, right? It's a, and, and one that may not be for everybody, but it's, it's, I think it's helpful. It's, it's called OMG. Yes. I don't know. Are you love familiar it. with that? Yes. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. So people should check it out. It's, it's, it's some people would consider it pornography. It's, it's graphic images of people masturbating. And so whatever you want to call that, uh, it's, they do not consider it pornography. They consider it uh, educational and it is uh, designed by women for women, but for partners of women, um, to explore the pleasure that comes from their fingers and their um, genitals. And uh, it, 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 they basically interview women uh, and ask them how they receive pleasure and how they give themselves pleasure. And then they, they demonstrate. And then there's an interactive piece with a touch. If you have a touch screen, you can imagine what that's like. And so it's actually um, eye-opening for a lot of women because um, there's a mythology that probably comes from men um, that there's just one way to experience pleasure. It has to do with inserting something into something else. And that's just when you, the data shows, and these women tell you about the variety of ways in which the, the, you know, pressure and rhythm and, and no one is the same. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and I think the anatomy, again, going back to anatomy and physiology is so important. Showing people pictures of what clitorises look like, that they're giant internal structures that go all the way down to your butt bones, much like a penis goes all the way internal down to your butt bones, and that it's an internal structure. And so if that's the thing that gives most women orgasm, it's not the only way to orgasm, but the majority of women orgasm from clitoral stimulation – it's a problem because the vagina is not the clitoris. It's near the clitoris, but it is not the clitoris. And so if you show a man that picture and you say, well, wait a minute, rub the inside of your thigh for five minutes. Will you have an orgasm? No, Dr. Rubin, of course not. Well, why not? Well, it's not my penis. Yeah, it's not your penis. Your vagina is not your clitoris. And so whereas some people are very sensitive and can have pleasure uh, with penetration, it is typically not the way most people orgasm. And so just understanding the biology and the physiology is so important. But the problem is even our medical textbooks have limited, you know, what, what female anatomy they even showcase. So your doctors don't even know, you know, what the true anatomy or nerve nerve innervation is of female genitalia, which in 2022 is mind-boggling. Wow. Yeah. What would you say to other physicians? You mentioned about the sheet and the the practices, right, with patient care in their genitals. What, what would you say to other doctors who, who may, um, you know, not, they think they're not trained in, they're not, they're not there for, for sexual issues, so they should, you know, not do anything differently? I would argue that every type of doctor is a sexual medicine doctor because sex is not one thing. So a psychiatrist needs to learn about sexual medicine. An oncologist, a cancer doctor, absolutely needs to understand about sexual medicine. A uh, An ear, nose, and throat doctor may even need to learn about sexual medicine because many HPV cancers can affect uh, a sexual, you're right, the mouth can be a sexual organ. Um, so there are so many reasons why all doctors, right, orthopedists, you get a new hip, you got to learn what sex positions you you can do and not hurt your new hip. A cardiovascular surgeon, when can I have sex again, doc? You need to learn about sexual health. And so the problem is doctors can learn new things. They can learn new things. They learn new techniques, new medications. They learn new things all the time. Sex is uncomfortable for people. The squick, whatever you said was amazing. Uh, uh, I love that. So what was it? It yeah, was squick, squeamish and yeah. squick. I'm going to use it forever. Thank you for teaching me that. Because doctors have so much squick when it comes to sexual health because they were not taught. And if you're not taught about something, then you feel a little bit strange and uncomfortable. Doctors don't like feeling uncomfortable. We like to be confident and we like to say we know everything. Uh, newsflash, we don't know everything. Uh, and so um, they're not going to bring it up and they don't always go to the trainings or go to, and there aren't that many opportunities. We try, we have a few, but there aren't a ton of opportunities. It's slowly changing thanks to social media. I've been able to really, uh, and my colleagues, uh, we've really been able to push and I think we have a lot of room to go to just let doctors know that like this is their lane. You have to know how to do this stuff. Yeah. Let's go back to low desire, low libido, uh, losing the mojo. What's, what's wrong? And I wonder if you think it's wrong or not, but what's wrong with the thought process of a person or, you know, let's maybe a guy, probably a guy, but maybe not. Um, or let's say an entire pharmaceutical company that says, Hey, I wish we could make a female Viagra. So I have a lot to say about this actually. And, and what I will switch to you is you see many people who have depression and anxiety, right? Do you see sexual side effects with those medications? Totally. Typically, an SSRI will inhibit sexual response. Uh -huh. yeah. And so the patient complains of what? Less desire. Low, low, low libido, right? They complain of delayed orgasm. They complain of low libido. Very common in certain antidepressants that they get sexual side effects. So 
Could there be a medication that could boost sexual function? If you turn it off, can you turn it on? I would think so. Yeah, you can. Of course. Antidepressants don't work for everybody, right? They probably work in two-thirds of people who take it. Does it negate the need for mental health care? Of course not, right? You have patients who you recommend medications, not because your work isn't important, but your job becomes easier when the burden of what they're experiencing is not so heavy. Totally. Is that that's correct? Totally correct. And that's the role of these medications. There are medications that boost dopamine in your brain that can help with sexual function. Doctors have been using Welbutrin or Bupropion and Buspar for years. And so these FDA-approved medications, we have two FDA-approved medications for low libido in premenopausal women. They work great in about two-thirds of people who try them. Do they make your partner start taking the garbage out and treating you nicely? No, of course not. But do they help with your own thoughts and ideas? Do they help spark some like, oh, I'm thinking about sex again. My dreams are back. My partner initiates and now I'm interested. It's when you get that. That responsiveness. That responsiveness or even that innate interest, it's magical to those patients. And so I use them in my practice as a tool, a biopsychosocial tool of saying, hey, two-thirds of a chance that it'll work. And when it works, oh, they're so happy. Patients are so happy. And, and the key is, why not try? right? Why not try? There are things. Is it going to change your, if you have a terrible relationship and you have one foot out the door and it's about to explode? No, it's the pill's not going to fix it. Of course not. But I have so many patients who say, gosh, I used to want, right? I no longer want, but God, Dr. Ruben, I want to want again. I want to be responsive. I want to have that spark. I used to have it. And that person deserves a treatment as much as the person who has wrinkles in their forehead and says, hey, can you put some Botox in there, right? I have four types of Botox brands that I could put in someone's forehead. I don't do that, but but th that are FDA approved for forehead wrinkles. And I have two medications for low desire in premenopausal women. They work in postmenopausal women and they work in men, but that is what we call off-label usage. And so are they dangerous? No. Are they controversial? Yeah, because sex is always controversial, and we hate the idea. We hate the idea that a pill can boost a woman's sexual function. We hate it because we want it all to be psychosocial. But here's my argument to you. is in men, we talk all about biology. It's always biology, and we should talk more about psychosocial stuff. And we need, we need more psychosocial stuff when it comes to our male patients. For women, the conversation is always psychosocial, and we completely ignore biology. And there's no question that biology plays a huge role. Hormones matter. Neurotransmitters matter. Like, these are important things. And, it all, and the psychosocial stuff, of course, matters too. And so that's my take on the libido medications. Do they serve a purpose? I've seen miraculous things happen. Is it a tool where no one then needs sex therapy? Everyone needs sex therapy, right? Nobody is so good at sex, they can't get better. Everyone can benefit from better communication and working on the squicks, as you say. Yeah, exactly. No, it's really refreshing to hear you say that. I would venture to guess that, I'm going to just throw a number out. I think 60, 70% of our field, and I know I'm just making this up because I can, it's my show, I can do that. Uh, I would guess that um, there's a, just a dominant bias that if a patient comes in and if, especially if it's a guy in, or in concert and in with a couple and they're saying, we just, you know, he, he you know, how much do you, would you like to have sex each week? He says, I could get away with every day. She says, um, you know, I could really not mind if we never did or, you know, whenever I don't really think about it. And the bias is going to be towards, 
you know, well, maybe does he have a sexual addiction? Like, what's his problem? Like, you know, as opposed to like working on and really trying to, um, you, you know, kind of target and bring up the level of, of the female or the, or the low, the low desire person. It's not always the female. I just want to make sure people know that. Right. And I see all sides, right? You see couples where, uh, same sex couples, couples where the man has the lower libido, the female, the answer is it's, it's a discussion and a shared decision making and an understanding. Can I get someone with a super high libido and someone with a super low libido to be on the same page? Not always. It's actually very challenging, but can I get, but, but it is sometimes possible to raise that floor for the low desire patient, whether it's the male or the female, and to just raise it a bit. And that is meaningful. Does it equate enough sex to satiate the partner who wants it all the time? No. no it's a, two, a two-pronged approach. Of course. And, and again, more of a plug of why I love what I do because I take care of all genders. So any love triangle that comes through my doors, I can look at from a biopsychosocial perspective and say, okay, here's the parts that we have. How are the parts functioning and driving? How do you want them to function and drive? Because it's okay to want something. Maybe we can't achieve it, but what do you want? Because that's the point of sex. It's supposed to be silly and gross and fun and enjoyable and just adult playtime. And so if you want something that maybe my other patient is totally grossed out by, that doesn't mean what you want is gross or disgusting. It just means everyone has sort of different ideas of what gives them joy and pleasure. Yeah. And it's about how we have those conversations and try to try to make space for that to happen and, and figure figure it out, right? And if you can't say the words, how can you even talk about what totally, you like, totally. right? You can't even say the words. I mean, I had a patient recently who she wouldn't, I've been working with her for years and she never told me that she was in a relationship with one of my other patients who she had sent me uh, because she was afraid of what I would think, you know, because I, you know, the, anyway, right, so, right. so it's even with someone where you have great relationships with, sometimes it's hard to have those conversations. Yeah, totally. How many times are you, are you having to say to a patient point blank, like they're, they're, they're complaining about arousal dysfunction or some sort of, um, disorder sexually, um, other than pain, I would say just right. Something other than that. Um, and you just, and you do the history, you're going to do the intake, what, what's going on in your life. And, uh, you say, you know what? I, I, I think you actually just have to quit drinking. I think you just have to quit smoking pot or really seriously look at how much you're using it. There's no question lifestyle plays a huge role in in all these kinds of issues. Now, pot is a really interesting one because the way the receptors work, it probably shouldn't help with sexual function, but the data shows that it does, right? Uh, women who use marijuana have better orgasms according to the data. Uh, it's really not great data. We need more of it, but but there's some um, idea that if you are relaxed, then you will experience more. And in the moment, you might experience better pleasure. Um, you know, again, to the point of that no one owns sexual medicine, it is really an approach of understanding what are lifestyle things that the patient can approve on? What are um, medical medications that we can use? What are the psychosocial interventions? And so I, I think rarely is it ever one thing, um, but certainly uh, uh, certainly alcohol uh, and, and uh, you know, certainly things can play a role that can be affecting a patient's sexual health. Yeah. Is there a, is there a belief that, um, if you could just implant in somebody's, in everybody's brain, everyone in the, in the, the, you know, could just populate everyone's brain, update everyone. Is there a belief that you think would help them, um, prevent or, or get through sexual dysfunction or emotional pain that results from s- some sort of sexual issue? 
I, I mean, is there, a, do I want to implant more dopamine in people's brains? That would be fun, right? If I can get, you know, if I could get people to have less shame and less um, sort of uh, just, just body shame and person shame. And we spend so much time hating ourselves that we don't have much time to live and enjoy life. And it just, it really, really frustrates me, right? And I think part of that is being able to just, you know, uh, name body parts and feel pleasure and feel that you deserve pleasure. You don't have to be a supermodel to get an orgasm. You don't have to look like Brad Pitt to deserve an orgasm or deserve a partner or deserve a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a, 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 a partner. And so I think that's the key is, is, is finding a place to just love yourself and, and know that like you deserve good things. Like you deserve intimacy. You deserve relationship if that's what you want. You deserve someone loving you. And, and it, it sometimes doesn't look the way it does on Hollywood, in Hollywood movies. And sometimes you have to figure it out and kind of build a team to support you. And sometimes, you know, it's funny. I saw a patient recently and, uh, he realized that like, you know, when he works, he's an engineer and when he's in, at work, he's around doctors and nurses and all these other people. And he never feels like himself. He feels terrible about himself. And he went to an engineering conference and he shows up at this conference and he was like, my people. He felt like a, like he was, a, he was him. He was around people who got it, who saw him, who felt, and it gave him joy. And so I think about that all the time of like, like sometimes you're just not in the right group of people. Uh, and you have to find your community of people who really will appreciate you and love you for who you are. Yeah, that reminds me that of something I learned a while ago that when, when you are struggling with sexual energy, and I think actually elite athletes play around with this idea, they'll, they'll, They'll have uh, regimens where they'll, you know, I don't know if it's Tom Brady. I can't remember who it is, but they'll be like, you know, celibacy guys. Like we have a game. Like you're, you're not going to be putting that creative energy in, in, into your, into your bed, bedroom. You, we want that energy here on, you know, in the, in the game. Um, which is an interesting, interesting thing, but it, it just makes me think about, um, you know, just how, um, like, like it's a canary in the gold mine again, going back to that imagery. Like if you're depressed, you know, sex is one of the first things that may, you may lose interest in, right? It's like, it feels like it's like one of the optional things, or if you're aging or if you're dealing with a disability, it, it's like the first thing that might go out or for some, for some people, it's maybe how they cope with it. Right. Um, but and I think to people's doctors, it stops mattering because oh, you have cancer, so we can't talk about your sexual health. Oh, you're frail, we can't talk about your sexual health. The data shows even frail people on their deathbed care about intimacy and sexual health. And so I think it's advocating for yourself to say, you know what, I do have a, a hip, uh, like a, a hurting hip, but I still would like to be close with my partner. I would still like to be intimate, and that's okay. And you deserve that. You you shouldn't have to choose between breast cancer and having uh, uh, partnered relations. You shouldn't have to make those choices. And and you should be confident and comfortable to know that your sexual health matters and is important to talk about. And again, to the point of, well, I should save it all up for my partner. Um, you know, I, I think I, I like, you know, my partner likes ice cream. I actually don't like ice cream that much. You know, like, does he have to eat ice cream in front of me every single time he has ice cream? Like, no, he can enjoy ice cream on his own every now and then. It's not going to bother me. And so I think thinking of it as like, it doesn't always have to look the way it does on Hollywood in order to get the points for it. And joy and pleasure, you know, matter. And, you know, it, it, these conversations have to happen. I find that couples 
They talk about kid poop and vomit and constipation, and they can talk about all these gross things, but then they have no idea if their partner masturbates. It's like an off-limit topic, right? It's too gross. We can't talk about it. Ooh, that's their lives. And like, why is that an off-topic conversation? Why does that make us squirm, you know, as you say? So um, uh, very good questions. Yeah, it's just information. And, and, and when we're afraid of the information, then we're really flying blind, I think. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and prone to, prone to some of these things, uh, kind of confusing us or disorientating us. Um, so yeah, what, what books are you reading right now, Rachel? What are, is there anything that, um, you know, or, or books that you like to, you frequently refer? I, the, okay. So I, I am so busy. I have two small children and I am not a huge reader because of that, but you are catching me at a good moment because I've read two amazing books in the last uh, couple of weeks. One is phenomenal. It is called The Body Keeps the Score which is a book on trauma that you probably know quite well that really talks about trauma and how our bodies experience trauma. It is a showstopper, that book. Um, I listened to it on my commute, so it took me quite a while to get through it because it's a pretty long and pretty heavy. It's a heavy book. Um, and the book I'm reading right now is amazing. It is called Vagina Obscura. Okay. And it is all on the history and evolution and, and the, what we know about women's reproductive anatomy. The whole first chapter is on the clitoris and how we have know absolutely nothing about the clitoris, uh, the vagina, the, the vaginal microbiome. It is so fabulous and it talks very historical perspective, um, about why we know nothing. And the writer is, she's amazing. Uh, and I very, very strongly recommend those two books. That's great. Um, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, the author of The Body Keeps the Score, I was amazed and honored that, he, that we did an interview together. So I, you know, if, if people oh, are interested cool. in that, uh, that was a few He's couple time. months ago. Yeah, he is, you know, since, and he just, you know, he talks about trauma and how, in fact, it's, it's this, we're in this period of the word trauma is being overused in some way. Everyone thinks there's a trauma and we have to get rid of, we have to solve and resolve all traumas. And that's not really true. Suffering is not, we're not, a, we can't ever get rid of suffering. We shouldn't ever really make that our goal. Um, we're going to exhaust ourselves, but more about accepting uh, trauma. So yeah, I, I can't say enough about that book and how popular that is. I thought you were going to say the vagina mo monologue, but that, that this sounds like the scientific version yeah, the more historical version. It's Vagina Obscura. It's really, it's excellent. That's great. That's great. Well, are there any th other resources or things that you'd want to share with, with our listeners? Uh Absolutely. And thank you for asking. So um, if you want to find a provider who knows about this, who cares about this, there are resources. So typically for my male patients, I refer them to the Sexual Medicine Society of North America or smsna.org. Uh, they have a find a provider section. For my uh, female patients or people who identify as female, um, there is ISWISH, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health or isswsh.org. Say that four times fast. They have a find a provider. If you are menopausal, the North American Menopause Society or NAMS, NAMS.org has a wonderful find a provider. I'm on all three lists. Uh, so if you're in the Washington DC area, you're more than welcome to come hang out with us. Um, and we, we put lots of great resources uh, in our newsletter. If you want to sign up at rachelrubinmd.com, uh, we've got a great newsletter. I always put great information out on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Rachel, at Dr. Rachel Rubin, R-A-C-H-E-L-R-U-B-I-N. And I'm just so grateful for the invitation. This has been, I know we've been trying to do this for a long time right. and uh, thank you for waiting for me. Yeah, I'm so pleased and uh, delighted to talk with you and um, 
Thank you so much for sharing everything. Thank you for having me. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or or hear more, get access to courses, and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. Not gonna happen.